For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nicole. And uh, as we keep those Bibles open, you'll find also there's an outline uh, that I'll follow along that's uh, there in your bulletin. You can make use of. And the first one is a question, what keeps a Christian strong and refreshed? What keeps a Christian strong and refreshed for our long journey home to heaven? Strong and refreshed in sickness and in health, in, in better times and in worse times, in times of freedom and in times of persecution, in riches, in poverty, in hardship, in living and in coming to that time of dying, what keeps a Christian strong and refreshed during our journey? Or would you believe it's something God has given us called the Lord's Supper? It's the Lord's Supper. What? Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, that little funny little thing we do. Once a month here at church, the thing called the Lord's Supper, that special ceremony we do with the bread and the wine, it's God's particular gift to strengthen and refresh every Christian individually and together for our difficult journey home. Uh, Christians, we refer to it as the Lord's Supper or communion or Holy Communion or the Eucharist. All those things are referring to the same ceremony, the thing we do in church. They all mean the same thing. And it's that time where the minister stands out front and says some things and we say some things in response and we eat that little piece of bread, that little cup of wine or grape juice with much prayer and words of rejoicing. And the Lord's Supper is also the most precious gift we take to the sick and Christians who are shut in and can't get to church. Gathering with them to together, it strengthens and refreshes their faith amidst all kinds of awful trial. And so in the, in the way that baptism, as we looked at it last week, it marks, it's the sacrament that marks the beginning of our walk with Christ and our journey with him. The Lord's Supper is the sacrament especially given by God to eat repeatedly, to strengthen and refresh us repeatedly all the way home on that long journey. And that's why we eat it repeatedly. Living by faith off him until we die, at which time that funny little piece of food and drink that we have reaches its fulfillment and will feast in heaven with him forever at the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. It's just that good. And yet, something good can also be a problem for us, can't it? So in the same way that giving an infant child a bag of gold, it won't necessarily help them, it could possibly even harm them, well, so also the great treasure of the Lord's Supper 
can be wasted and can be abused, can even be harmful if Christians don't know what it is, how it helps us and, and who should eat it. Now, God supplies the answers for this for us in the Bible and so uh, what He's revealed to us there. So our plan for this series, as we did last week with baptism, is we're trying to clear away the dirt and the muck and the weeds and the rocks and, and all our superstitions and various other practices and things that we've laid up on top of it and, and actually examine what this thing is, what is this foundation that He's given us and rediscover what communion is, how it helps us, who should eat it, and, well, that's going to be the focus of our time this evening. And because God's the one who gave it to us, let's ask his help, shall we? Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're our God, uh, that you know us better than we know ourselves, and you know what we need. Uh, we actually don't, and we especially don't know what we need spiritually, because uh, we're very physical, and we're very distracted by so much that's going on in our world, and... Well, thank you for speaking your word and giving us the Bible that unpacks these things for us. And we ask your help now to break through all the thoughts in our heads, the concerns on our minds. Uh, would you sharpen our thoughts, give us clarity on what it is, this thing you've given us to do and why and how it can help us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So these three questions. What is it? How does it help us? Who should eat it? Well, the first one, Lord's Supper, what it is. So this, this thing, this Lord's Supper, it's called the Lord's Supper because it's the Lord who instituted and he started with eating the last supper with his disciples, that last supper uh, before he went to the cross. Now, that last supper is recorded for us specifically in each of the four Gospels and in three of those Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, and in Luke 22, we find there the historical description for us of that meal and what happened, what Jesus said, uh, his actions, his commands. And then as the New Testament continues, we find there more passages that unpack it for us and give us more information. So we look to John chapter 6 and look at Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, of which we've read a tiny portion of just a few moments ago in 1 Corinthians 11. And as we then grab all those things, we're more able to fully understand what God has revealed and therefore what it means and what it doesn't mean, what it should mean and what it shouldn't in this period between Jesus' ascension to rule and his return to judge, because that's where we live. Jesus died on the cross, he's risen again, he ascended to rule, and we're waiting for his return. And we live in that period between the two. And in this period is the time that he's instituted this meal for us to strengthen and refresh us while we wait. And that's where we get the information for it. And yet its foundations run much deeper in the Bible than the New Testament. See, in our first encounter with it in the Gospels, we find this meal, uh, Jesus fulfilling and reinterpreting the Jewish Passover meal. That's what they were eating together. And so we find that Jesus said as he passed the bread and took the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, all of a sudden, we've got blood, we've got covenants, we've got things. What's he talking about? Luke 22 is where we find that. And what he's talking about, or this, this covenant and this need for a new covenant, 
Well, it reminds us of what, well, what the old covenant was, what that was all about, why this Passover meal was being eaten. It reminds us of going right back to the very start of the Bible where God released his people from Egypt. We had those amazing 10 plagues upon the Egyptians and Pharaoh saying, no, I won't let your people go. And then God rescued them with the 10th plague. And the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn, the firstborn male in every household in the entirety of Egypt. All except those whom the angel of death passed over. Hence, it's called this Passover meal. And he commanded to eat this Passover meal and that anyone who didn't eat it wasn't included. So if you eat the meal and you do what he says, you're included and the angel of death passes over you. If you don't eat it, you're not included. Well, then that angel of death comes to visit. And that's exactly what happened in Egypt all that time ago. So it's recorded for us in great detail in Exodus chapter 12, right back at the very start of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus. It's right there at the very beginning in great detail. And so the Israelites did what God said. They sacrificed an unblemished male lamb, didn't break any bones. And then they prepared it to eat for the whole household. But they wiped the blood on the doorway, on the doorpost, on the door lintel, on the outside of the door, so that when the angel of death came over, see the blood wouldn't enter. And that's exactly what happened, passed over that house. And so by trusting in God's promise, trust that was shown in their sacrificing that lamb and by their eating and their drinking under the blood of the lamb, well, the Israelites were saved and only the firstborn of the Egyptians died. Now, God gave them not just that one moment of, of salvation, he gave this as an annual symbolic Passover meal as a lasting command for every generation that followed, that every single year they were to hold a special gathering and they were to reenact this thing and eat and drink again in celebration and in remembrance of what God had done for them, this thing that made them who they are, this rescued people, this forgiven people living by faith in salvation purchased by the blood of the Lamb. But it didn't go so well. See, read on past Exodus 12 in the Old Testament, and we find that the Israelites were not faithful to God's command. Not only did they rarely celebrate the Passover meal each year, they also quickly forgot who they were. They quickly forgot that they were the forgiven people of God. They quickly forgot to love him and to love one another whom he'd gathered in this special way. And as a result, they became weak in their confidence. Their faith was eroded. Their faith in God was eroded. They became really dry in their hope and slowly but surely, well, they started to deny God in every way and intermingled with the world rather than with one another. They started to do everything that anyone else did, rather than being God's special chosen people. Now, God's answer to their failure was to promise a new covenant. A new covenant. One that would fulfill and complete that Passover covenant, that would bring all the promises of that to fruition. A new covenant that would be an internal one, written on his people's hearts by God's Spirit. Now, he announces that covenant Again, way back at the very start of the Bible, even before they started really screwing up. So we find it in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and its first point when Moses is there with the Israelites just before they enter the promised land. He mentions it there and then it gets unpacked further and further, especially as the need becomes more obvious. 
The prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah write about it in great length. However, still for hundreds and hundreds of years, nothing happened. The old covenant remained in place and things just kept going from bad to worse until God stepped in again. And God sent John, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist showed up in Israel, caused a great big stir, and all the people of Israel were going out to the Jordan River to be baptised by John. We looked at that last week. And they were coming, and he was talking to them and teaching them. And one day when Jesus rocked up to be baptised, John the Baptist looks at him, points at him, and in front of everyone says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. This is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this, this guy, he is the son of God. Now, we just celebrated Easter together, right? So you and I already know how Jesus fulfilled this, how Jesus became this sacrificial lamb who took away the sin of the world. Jesus took away our sins by becoming that unblemished lamb. He did it on the cross, didn't he? where he received the judgment of God poured out on him so that it wouldn't be poured out on everyone who was taking refuge under his sacrifice, just as it did with the Passover. And it's such a momentous thing that on the night before he died, knowing what was about to happen, Jesus gathered with his disciples at that annual Passover meal And he explained its fulfilment and he instituted this new covenant meal that we're supposed to eat together now until his return. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's where it came from. That's why we still eat it today, because Jesus hasn't come back yet. And so we keep eating as we wait. And in this church, we do it at Easter, we do it at Christmas. And in this congregation, uh, we do it on the first Sunday of every month, which is today, Therefore, we'll celebrate a little bit later on tonight. So that's what it is. That's why we eat it. But how does it help us? What's the point? What's actually, you know, what's in it for us? How does this benefit us? How does it strengthen and refresh us? Well, it does so fascinatingly. It works in the very same way as a birthday cake. Have you noticed that? It works in the same way as a birthday cake. Uh, A birthday cake, we receive a birthday cake with joy and we eat it joyfully. And, you know, you shouldn't eat too much because you're sick. You don't need to eat very much. But as we do that, we do that, we celebrate that. We're we're grounded in our identity that can't be changed by our circumstances. It's a reminder looking back at to who we are. And so in the same way, the bread and the wine in communion achieve the same thing. They're about celebrating our identity. And because we eat it together... It's about our common identity together in Christ, that our new life as God's people began corporately for all of us when Jesus died in our place and our sins were forgiven. So that no matter what's happened since, the Lord's Supper reminds us that nothing can change the historical fact of our identity purchased by Christ in his death for all who trust in him. So eating this meal together in church, it celebrates, not just with the birthday kid on this occasion, it's with with all of us who trust him and have our identity and new life in him. And we do that trusting not in our own merits that we're worthy to eat it, but rather in by his merits that he did it. 
And we participate like with the Passover. We participate like when we're celebrating with someone at a birthday. And we chew and we swallow. And it reminds us, not that we're living on this piece of food, but we're actually feeding spiritually on the bread and the wine as we eat physically. It's that sign pointing to a spiritual reality. A physical sign pointing to a spiritual reality, just like as we talked at baptism last week. Now, it's important to say that this is not a re-sacrifice of Jesus. That is not an altar. That is a table. Please don't call it an altar, because it isn't. It's a table that we celebrate and serve food from. We serve the Lord's Supper from a table, because we're not sacrificing anything or anyone. The once-for-all sacrifice has been done. Jesus did that. And as we hand out that little bit of bread, that little bit of grape juice or whatever it is that we managed to give you on this particular occasion, it, it doesn't magically become his flesh or his blood. We're not cannibalizing here. There's no strange kind of thing going on. Rather, it's a bit like, well, the Passover meal doesn't become the original one, nor does a birthday cake become original birth. It, it, it's a remembrance meal. It's a celebration pointing back to that thing that saved us so long ago. So it's very physical, but it's pointing to something else. And that's helpful, but it also feeds us and strengthens us and refreshes a particular way. So, in fact, it does it in three very special ways. And you're going to love this bit. This is my favourite bit. This is what I love most about the Lord's Supper and how it works, because it refreshes us and strengthens us in three particular ways. It does it inward, It does it outward, and it does it forward. Inward, outward, forward. First of all, the inward effect. That eating and drinking communion, it feeds our confidence. It feeds our confidence. This is the inward effect. Because, of course, we can't do it for ourselves. Have you noticed that? As Christians, we don't manage to feed our own assurance and confidence. If anything, we manage to erode it. But as we share in communion, the words remind us that our salvation does not depend upon our performance. It does not depend upon our ability to think about it or produce anything. The words remind us that it's all about him and not us. And that's tricky, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I know that in my walk with Christ, day by day, week by week, it's very easy to fall into doubt that, well, I'm probably not good enough. I know my sins, some of you might know some of them, but I know all of them and I know that I'm not worthy. And why should he remember me when he returns, of all people? And do I even count? And In fact, my sins, are they, I struggle to forgive myself. Are they too big to forgive? And the more we think about that, you notice your confidence in Christ and your confidence that you're saved just erodes, erodes, erodes. Well, when we come to communion, the opposite happens. Rather than being shaken and weakened as we fix our eyes on ourselves, in communion we're forced by the service and the words and what's declared to fix our eyes back on Jesus and what he did for us, to fix our mind on Jesus, our heart upon him. And we find out that it's not about me and what I can achieve. It's actually about him and what he did for me that I can't wreck or improve no matter what I did. And therefore, my confidence is no longer about myself. It's now back in Christ where it ought to be. 
and our confidence is fed by sharing in communion. But it does more than that. It also feeds our relationships. Eating and drinking communion feeds our relationships. And this is the outward effect. This is the outward effect. So, you know, feeling lonely and afraid and a little bit isolated as a Christian, lost, friendless, well, that's no surprise because it's a tough world to be a Christian in. So join a local church, show up at a local church, be present at a local church and eat at the Lord's table. Eat at the Lord's table because that's what he set up for us for while we wait for his return. Anything else is a mistake. And it's only in a local church that communion is served And a group of local Christians come together and they commit to one another also in the Lord. In this way, church is not a food court and communion is not a food court. You ever eaten in a food court? You know what it's like to eat in a food court. You know, it's it's all about ignoring everyone else and pretending they're just not there or eating like food on an aeroplane. Done a bit of that lately. You just want to pretend nobody else exists, right? It's just you and you're just trying to do your thing. Well, the Lord's Supper is the opposite. And you can see that by the way that we eat it together. It's actually about our relationships corporately. And so those who eat at the Lord's table with us are those that we can look to for help, for guidance, for compassion. The people who eat at the Lord's table are the ones that the Lord has gathered together and commanded to support us, to forgive us, uh, to seek to bear with us in our bear with us in love in all our situations and all our mistakes and foolishness. And those people are the same people we're supposed to do it for, which we can only do if, of course, we're present and doing this together. And when we do in this very public way, our our relationships are strengthened outwardly at the Lord's table. So it's inward, it's outward, but there's a third one, forward. Eating and drinking at communion, it feeds our hope. It feeds our hope. This is that forward effect. It's, this fights against that dead-end feeling that we have as we encounter difficulty. You know, when it, things are tough, is there anything worth living for, getting up for today? It's so easy to get stuck in a rut, isn't it? I mean, is this the best there is? Is this the best life has to offer? It's so easy to fall into a cycle of hopelessness and despair. Sickness will do it. Frustration will contribute grief, tiredness, uh, difficulty, relationship strain, all of those daily trials and layer them on a bit and they all become an absolute recipe for hopelessness. And so we, we, we lose hope and we try and refine our hope by doing things. And so the people of the northern Illawarra around us every day are stuck in this rut trying to create heaven here. Get up each day. Got to make it better than the last day. I've got to improve it because this is all is. This body's all I've got. This life is all I've got. I've got to make it better now. So don't get in my way or I'll road rage you. Easy to get cranky when we're trying to make heaven here, right? But for Christians, well, we get caught up in that as well. We get caught up in that same rat race of trying to make things perfect now. But that's not how it is and that's not how it's going to be that's not what god's word tells us and the lord's supper helps us with this it reminds us to look forward 
beyond this body, beyond this life, to Christ's return. It reminds us that our hope is not supposed to be fixed now. Actually, our hope will be fulfilled later. When judgment happens, when justice occurs at last at Christ's return, when our resurrection bodies are received, an eternal bliss with Christ will be ours. And that's why we say in the Lord's Supper, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and do it. That's why we say the, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Come on, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. Let's get this going. It fixes us forward to the certain sure fact of his return. And, and in this way, our Christian hope is strengthened and is refreshed as we consume the Lord's Supper and look forward to that great banquet that we're going to share with our Saviour and with all his people at his marvellous return. And that's good news, isn't it? Because that piece of bread and that little cup of wine ain't very much, right? We're looking forward to that great banquet. Right, yeah, so that's what it is, and that's why we eat it, and that's what it supplies for us, how it strengthens us. So that, that last question then, and that's what our passage picked up here, who should and shouldn't eat it? Who should and shouldn't eat it? Now, from everything I've described so far, if it really is that good, everyone should. Uh, the Passover was welcome. The Egyptians were welcome to do it. Some of them did and actually went with the Israelites. Everyone's welcome to do it, but should everyone do it? Well, it's a mistake not to if you actually want your, to be strengthened spiritually in those particular ways, but at the same time, we can make mistakes with it. And that's what Paul was writing to here in the Corinthian church in our passage. I'm sure you noticed, as Nicole read out, a very serious warning was there. So there in verses 27 and following, I'll read them out again for you. You've got them in your Bibles, but here they are. So then... So having described what it was all about and having unpacked it for two chapters, he says, So then, whoever eats the bread of the, who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. And if we read into the very next sentence... That is why many of you are weak and ill and a number of you have fallen asleep. Severe judgment had fallen onto the Corinthian church because of this unworthy eating. So it's important then to find out what does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner. It'd be good to avoid that, right? Well, there's lots of dust in the air on this. There's lots of opinions that fly around and... Uh, we can make all kinds of mistakes with this. The, the two most common mistakes I come across and regularly come across uh, as a minister who does this stuff is related to... Well, the first of them is related to children. The first thing we think about eating in an unworthy manner is to do with the children of Christians. Should they eat it? Should the children of Christians eat it? And... The reality is here at this point is we're fearful of childish pranks and childish inability of self-control, that that's probably the equivalent of unworthy eating because, you know, I'm not going to take you out to a restaurant if you're going to eat like that, kid. So you're not coming to the Lord's table, right? So you know, we, we equate that kind of stuff. And so some parents and some churches will fence off the table from children and stop them from eating and drinking. 
because that child doesn't yet have sufficient self-control to look pious and solemn and eat with the kind of decorum that us adults can fake for a little while. Because we're good at faking it. They're not good at faking it yet. They can't do it for long enough. So keep them away until they can. But that's a mistake, isn't it? It's a clear mistake. Think on it. Why would we deliberately make weak? So this thing to strengthen and refresh us, why would we deliberately make weak the most vulnerable and already weak people amongst us? Why would we do that? Why would we starve them of the benefits communion brings? It's, it's crazy. We would not do it with normal food. No, kid, you're not going to have dinner tonight because yesterday you dribbled. We don't do it with normal food. Why would we do it with this, which is way more important? It's about their eternal life, not just about their physical body. We wouldn't logically and we shouldn't spiritually do this. Rather, we should let them enjoy its benefits, eating and drinking, while we teach them what it means. In the same way we do is we teach them about everything else. We get them participating and we teach them along the way as they have the ability to understand. Let's not exasperate Christian children. Let's not do that. Jesus said, let little children come to me. Don't hinder them. Let's not hinder them. That's a mistake. So I'll say it as clearly as I can. Eating in an unworthy manner has nothing to do with the childish ways of children. But there's a second error, a second error that's the common one, and that is to declare that eating in an unworthy manner is about how we might feel about our sins. So how do I feel about my sins today? How do I feel about my sins? Is, if I don't feel worthy, if I don't feel worthy of God today, if I feel shameful about my sin, then I probably shouldn't eat it. In fact, not only should I not eat at the Lord's table, Maybe I shouldn't even go to church because I'm not worthy. Ever been tempted with that one? <laughs> that we starve ourselves and punish ourselves because of our sins. But here's the thing no true Christian ever feels worthy. <laughs> That's the point. We're not worthy. That's why Jesus had to come and die on the cross for our sins and pay the price for them entirely because we aren't worthy and we can't pay for them. None of us are worthy. That's why we need to eat and drink spiritually on Him, trusting in Him, not trusting in ourselves and our ability to get our life straight and fixed up and right. No one is lacking in sin so much that we don't need Jesus and no one's, no one's sins are so bad that Jesus' death isn't enough. Oh, friends, please don't starve yourselves. Don't absent yourself from the body of Christ, from church, from God's family, because you're feeling bad about your sins. That's the reason to come. That's why we're here. To get our eyes off ourselves, put them back on Christ where our salvation can be found. Now, we eat and drink to remind us of the truth about what he has done. And so that our feelings get shaped by the truth. We must not seek to reshape the truth around our feelings. That's a devastating loss. So, so they're, the, they're the two things that it's not. If it's not unworthy feelings about our sin, if it's not about childish manners, well then, what is unworthy eating? What on earth could it possibly be? 
Well, it's in our passage. It tells us. It's eating and drinking without recognising the body of the Lord. So in the Bible, the body of the Lord, the body of the Lord only ever refers to two things. The body of the Lord refers to Christ personally and to his church, his people corporately. And that's what's being picked up in verse 29 by Paul. So he said, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That, that's who does it. Without discerning the body of Christ. And this is about him personally and his church corporately. So him personally, let's deal with that one first. It's unworthy to eat and drink without recognising that we participate by faith in Christ and what he did for us. So we eat and drink, we only eat and drink because we recognise what he did for us. And that's what Christians do. Therefore, the only people who don't do that are people who don't yet trust Jesus for their salvation. That category of non-Christian, if you like. So if a person doesn't yet believe that Jesus died for them and that they're trusting in him for their salvation, then they should not eat and drink the Lord's Supper because at that point in time, they're not recognising Christ and what he's done for us. And until such time that they do, should not eat and drink. Uh, that's, that's why. That, we don't want them to eat and drink judgment on themselves, so therefore, let's withhold until such time as trusting in Jesus for their salvation. That's regarding Christ personally. What about his church corporately? Well, regarding that, we remember, of course, that Christ is the head of his body, which is the church. Christ is the head of his body, the church. And therefore, it's unworthy, in an unworthy manner, to eat and drink without recognising the body of believers that he has called together. Unworthy to eat without recognising that body of believers. Now, again, in one sense, that immediately rules out the non-Christian because the non-Christian doesn't respect and love the body of believers because they don't actually value what they value. So again, probably shouldn't eat. But there's a bigger thing at play here, and this is why Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Because remember, it was the Christians in, Conf in Corinth here who were becoming weak and who were sick and were dying because they were eating in an unworthy manner. And as we read through the letter of Corinthians, we find that they were splitting into factions with dissension and envy and bitterness and fits of rage and they judged and divided and they hurt one another in the church. They were hurting the body of Christ in that local church as they used their own selfish ends and disrespectful power games to try and, well, hurt each other. And they fell under the severe discipline of the Lord. A body of Christians fell under the severe discipline of the Lord because they were not recognising the body of Christ around them. And so in this way, any Christian who is not in good fellowship with their church family and takes communion, well, they then are risking eating and drinking judgment on themselves. And that's the extent of it. Nothing to do with kids or how we feel. No, it's entirely to do with a non-Christian who's out of fellowship with Christ or a Christian who's out of fellowship with his body, the church. And frankly, both of those situations are easily fixed. No one needs to eat and drink judgment on their own head. Non-Christians 
can they have the opportunity constantly always open to put their faith in Christ and tonight again I will open the table to anyone who would like to eat and drink and if you're here as an unbeliever and you're thinking well, I don't eat and eat, drink judgment on my head good don't change that trust in Christ for your salvation eat and drink and be strengthened and you're welcome and it's open to do so it's an easy change likewise <laughs> Cranky Christians are allowed to repent. Cranky Christians who are out of fellowship and stroppy with one another, well, it's time to stop doing that and it's time to forgive and it's time to bear with one another in love and it's time to, well, stop doing the kinds of things so that you eat and drink judgment on yourself as well. Don't do that. Change. Repent. Make a decision. Fix the problem and eat and drink at the Lord's table. Don't starve yourself of the Lord's table and don't risk God's judgment because you fail to do this. And if anyone needs assistance with that tonight, today, this week, let me know or let a mature Christian know. There's opportunity and time and this is the time to reconcile with Christ or his church. Act on that because when all is said and done, we don't want judgment on anyone but also we all need to be strengthened and refreshed for this long journey home. And that's what God does. That's what he does with the Lord's Supper. Let's never forget that God will strengthen and refresh spiritually all who eat and drink by faith in Jesus. All who eat and drink by faith in him will be strengthened spiritually. Our confidence, our relationships and our hope. So, with all that in mind, I give you fair warning that in a few minutes from now, I will offer to all who would receive it the most comforting sacrament of the body and blood of Christ Jesus. The children are going to join us. They're going to come back in. We're going to have a song and then we're going to have that meal together. And Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you want that rest? Well, then come to the Lord's table. That's how he delivers it in this time before he returns. All who love Christ, all who love his body, the church, are invited to his table. So let's begin the celebration. And we're going to begin that celebration in song. The band's going to come forward. I feel like we should be singing happy birthday. That's probably not what we're going to sing. Let's, uh, let's sing something else. <laughs>